want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. However you happen to be listening to today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll get access to all future episodes downloaded straight to your podcast player. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the like button in addition to subscribing. If you're listening to a podcast platform, a five-star rating and review are very much appreciated. Thank you for your support. In today's episode, I want to discuss banks and the banking industry's business model. Specifically today, we're going to focus on why banking is an unattractive industry. This is the third episode of my banking series. Check out episode 79 and episode 82 for more information on the banking industry. So let's dive into the key characteristics of the banking industry, which I believe make it unattractive for investors. In the last episode, I focused on the aspects of the industry which I found attractive to investors. And now we're going to look at the other end of the coin. I think it's important that investors look at all aspects of their investments, both the good things and the bad, because you need to be able to make an argument for why not to buy your stock just as well as you make an argument for why to buy the stock. If you're unable to do this, then you probably don't understand your investment well enough. And that can be a massive blind spot for you for what may arise in the future. You need to know why you might fail just as much as you might succeed. So let's dive in. What are some of the key drawbacks of the banking industry? The most logical place to get begin is the 2008 financial crisis. Now, I could probably just end this episode with that statement alone. Many of you were either investing in the 2008 financial crisis, but surely were around during the 2008 financial crisis to understand what goes along with that. It was precipitated by, in large part, instability and problems in the banking industry. There were loans, bad loans being made. There were a lot of speculation in securities. And all of this caused massive fragility problems throughout the rest of the economy, but it all began with the banking industry. And from the 2008 financial crisis, there's been a massive negative reputation towards banks and the banking industry since that time. Now, it's been 12 years since 2008, but you still have those repercussions from the 2008 financial crisis that are in people's psyche and how they think about the banking industry. However, I think there's value in expanding on what bank investors today can learn from this crisis and specifically how that event may be repeated or rhyme in the future and how to avoid owning a bank that may be affected by such problems. If you're going to make an investment in a bank, you need to understand the risks that banks have. And when we think about a financial crisis, 
banks are one of the primary financial companies that many people think about, insurance companies being one of the other major ones. So let's talk about some of these characteristics that highlight the banking industry overall as maybe not an industry you want to invest in. First and foremost is risk management. One of the problems with the banking industry is that risk management is primary. And risk management within banking is heavily influenced by management. You see, the problem is, is that a poor management team can quickly ruin a good bank. And this is a problem for investors because it requires evaluating management and understanding their ability and focus on managing risk. This is even harder to do because nearly all bank managers recognize this problem and are going to pay at least lip service to risk management. They will talk to you about why they focus on risk management. They will write that their focus is on managing risk. Their focus is on preventing poor loans. But you have to look a little deeper than that. And this is even, this is difficult because a lot of times people like to judge management by the performance of the company that they're managing. And the problem is, as we've talked about with the mental model resulting, is you can't judge someone's process by their outcomes. That might be true on the, over the long term that a good process leads to good outcomes. But there's a lot of randomness in the market. There's a lot of randomness in business. It's possible to have a bad process and have good outcomes for quite a long time, five, ten years. So it's very difficult to not conflate good past performance with good management. Now, I certainly don't have all the answers here of how to do that today. I think it's an area that I want to expand on more in the future is how to judge a bank's management team, how to really talk to them, how to figure out what their focuses are and what they really mean when they discuss different aspects of their business. But the one area I think is worth touching on is really understanding how a bank thinks about growth and leverage. And growth is important because investors like to see growth. Managers also like to see growth because as their business gets bigger, they tend to have higher salaries, higher bonuses, that sort of thing. But the problem is, is when you grow as a bank, that means new loans. And new loans tend to mean new risks and maybe risks that haven't been fully validated. So the faster you grow, the harder it is to manage your risk and the harder it is to truly know all the risks that you're taking. So it's important to understand how the management thinks about growth, whether they're targeting a specific growth rate, which can be quite dangerous, or whether they're targeting certain returns or certain loss profiles, which is better. The other piece here and what I'm tying into about why this industry is not attractive from the sense of needing certain management is Buffett's been often quoted as saying something along the lines of wanting to own a business that could be run by an idiot because eventually an idiot would run it. Unfortunately, this does not often apply to banks. Right, well, it'll be more clear as we discuss further issues, but the problem is, is that banks need good management. 
Now, you can make a lot of money with a bank as long as the bank has good management. Buffett owns quite a few banks and has made a lot of money with banks. But you need to understand why those decisions are made. And it doesn't excuse the fact that the need for good management in banking is a negative for the industry. This is not a set it and forget it type investment. This is not an investment where it's okay to simply have bad management in charge. If your bank has bad management, it's going to come back to bite you eventually. So because risk management is so important, you need good management and that's a downside for the banking industry. Which brings me to my next area, and this is heavily influenced by management, is that banks operate with high leverage. You see, in many industries, high leverage can often be seen as a risky decision making. So if you're operating with high leverage, it means that you have a lot of risk. You might have debt because it's necessary to get a sufficient return. You might have debt because you're trying to leverage your returns to be even higher. You might have debt because you're trying to grow faster. All of these things come into it. But with banking, leverage is a feature. You see, high leverage is not only a present across the board in the banking industry. You're going to find almost every bank is going to have high leverage, higher than would ever be acceptable at another business. But that leverage is also required to earn an adequate return on capital. I covered this in episode 79 when we discussed the banking business model, how the leverage leads into the return on equity that the businesses are trying to target. But basically, you're talking at about 10 times leverage is a fairly normal leverage rate for a bank versus if you had three times leverage at any other company, that would be pretty high. So banks are substantially more leveraged than a typical business. And the more leverage a company uses, you have the higher risk of blowing up or having bankruptcy due to deteriorating loan performance. And that's why management plays such a big role. It's easy for the bank to grow by offering loans to people and companies that are not creditworthy. However, the more you do this, the more you're set up for failure down the road. Now, in the short term, those higher loans are going to mean higher earnings, higher performance, higher growth. All these things are seen as very positive by investors. But if 10 years from now, those loans go bad, you set up to a point where you might have a failure of the bank. You might have investors lose everything because bad loans were made and proper risk management wasn't followed. In banking, it's always easy to grow simply by offering a price that's not economical. And that's true in a lot of industries. If you're giving away a dollar for 90 cents, a lot of people are going to take it because they're going to get a better value than what you're requiring from them. And that's very dangerous in banking because it's hard to predict default rates. And so you need a huge focus on trying to understand creditworthiness. That's simply to say that this leverage can be a problem. It's a double-edged sword. The leverage is required by banks to earn adequate returns, but it's also the potential source for the bankruptcy that has been highlighted so clearly with the 2008 financial crisis. My next key drawback of the banking industry is that value traps abound. You see, banks, particularly among the small banks, have a history of very low returns on equity. And this is a problem because return on equity tends to be the 
upper limit of what an investor can receive for being a long-term holder of the business. Jeff Gannon of the Focus Compounding Podcast had a nice way of discussing this with me in the past. And one of the things he said was basically that when you're buying any investment, your rate of return for being a long-term holder of that investment is going to be somewhere between the starting earnings yield and the return on equity. So if you buy a stock at a 15 PE ratio, that's about a 6% earnings yield. And if the return on equity is 10%, then there's a pretty good likelihood that your expected rate of return for that investment is somewhere between 6% and 10%. That means that your top-end return, that 10%, is driven by the 10% return on equity. Well, I like to get a return above 10% in my investments, which means I need a return on equity above 10% when I'm buying a stock. So if banks have returns on equity below 10%, this is a hamper on my ability to earn double-digit rates of return. Unfortunately, you see this quite often. Many small banks, even with the use of leverage, will have returns on equity below 10%. You might have a return on equity of 5% or 6% or 7%. While 7% might be better than a 5% bank, all of these numbers are bad because it means that any money that's retained in the business and is used to grow that bank is earning a lower return on capital than your target discount rate. That means being a long-term holder of a bank with a low return on equity is a way of locking in low long-term returns for your portfolio, at least from an investment side. Certainly there's the speculative side. Stock prices could rise if you get it out of the bank quickly. If you're able to sell for a higher price-to-book ratio than you bought at, you might be able to get an adequate rate of return. But that's more speculative. When you're buying into a bank with a low return on equity, you're creating a situation where you need time to go quickly. Time is no longer on your side. I want to buy investments where time is on my side. That I, If they work out in a year, great, I make a high return. But if they work on it in 20 years, great, I still make a high return. I want to have time on my side. And in order to do that, you need a high return on equity. Well, the problem is, is you might have thousands of community banks in the United States that have returns on equity below 10%. Now, they might have a price-to-book ratio below 1. They might be able to be sold at a bank, you know, you might be able to buy them at a price-to-book of 0.5 or 0.7 or 0.8. And this can be attractive. It's a trap to value investors, though. Because when value investors see that, they're like, oh, it's trading for less than book value. That's a good deal. Well, it can be. If you can buy a price to a company at below book value but has a return on equity of 12%, that's a good deal because it means your return is going to be higher than 12% as long as that reinvestment opportunity is available. But if the return on equity is 4%, well, you have to have a discount to book value. It should probably should trade at a price to book of 04 so if you bought it at a price to book of 0.5 and it should trade at a price to book of 0.4, that's not a good deal. You have to be very careful in these banks. So that doesn't mean the whole industry has this problem. So maybe it's a not a fair assessment to say that this is a drawback of the banking industry. But 
it is a problem from the investor's standpoint on the industry because it means if I'm going to go out and I'm going to look to own banks and I want to have banking in my portfolio, maybe that's one bank or three banks five banks, and I'm going to put a subset of my portfolio into the banking industry. It means I have to be very careful because when I'm screening for banks, I might screen on a price-to-book ratio. And most of the companies that are going to show up with a low price-to-book ratio are going to be worse investments than the, that might, than the ones that might have a high price-to-book ratio. Let me see real quick. Okay, so I just pulled out my calculator here, and one of the bank stocks that I'm buying, for instance, has a price-to-book ratio of 1.7. So why would I do that? Well, what it implies, if I'm buying at a price-to-book ratio of 1.7, then on a very simplistic look-through basis, that I think that the return on equity, sustainable return on equity for that business, is about 17% or higher. That allows me to get my 10% rate of return by buying in at that rate because you have 1.7 divided by that 17% get me, or 17% divided by 1.7 gets me to that about 10% rate of return. But instead, it works the other way. If you have a really low return on equity and you're around 5%, then the only way to get up to a 10% return on equity is to buy at half of book value. So it's just to highlight the issue that if you were to buy banks simply because they're low price to book, certainly it can work out as a strategy, but it's more often than not going to be a value trap because really what you need is you need some sort of catalyst. You need something to change. You need the bank to be bought by another bank. You need the bank to increase its return on equity somehow. You need the market to get better for them. And I don't like to bet on change. I like to bet on things staying the same. So I want to find companies that don't need a catalyst in order for me to make money. I want them to just simply do what they're doing now, continue to grow, continue to get high returns on their money. And it means focusing on these higher quality banks. But you might have value traps. That's the main point here for this section. The next piece, bankruptcy risk. You see, bankruptcy risk is higher in banking than in a normal industry. Maybe some people disagree on me with this, but the way I see it is that all companies can fail due to leverage. But banks have higher leverage than normal. So leverage is a key method by which you might have bankruptcy. Therefore, operating at a higher level of leverage is more dangerous. Um, Second piece... All companies can fail due to a liquidity trap, basically not having enough cash on hand to pay your short-term liabilities. So even if you have sufficient income, sufficient cash flow, if you can't pay a short-term liability, if you can't make payroll, if you can't pay your debt payment this month, even if you would be able to pay it next month, then you could fall into bankruptcy because you can't make your payments now. That's a liquidity trap. Well, All companies can be exposed to that, but a bank's business model is based on lending long-term and borrowing short-term. Their whole business model is set up for a potential liquidity trap, which again could lead to bankruptcy. Now remember, in the last episode, episode 82, I talked about the benefit of there being fewer banks in the industry over time. But the implicit 
underlying fact for there being fewer banks over time is that one of two things is happening to those banks. Those banks are either failing, going bankrupt, needing to have the FDIC come in, save the bank, and, and, and sell off its assets to a competitor, or the bank is not performing well enough to avoid being bought out by a larger competitor. So they're having to merge with larger competitors or sell the larger competitors. In either situation, it's showing that the banks are having problems competing and they're having problems surviving. That means when you see that consistently over an industry for decades, that you have a higher risk. You have this risk that the bank that you buy might be one of the banks with that problem. So I think there's just a higher chance of bankruptcy for a bank than other industries. Now, my last major point on why I think the banking industry can be unattractive, and it's because money is a commodity. Now, generally, I don't like commodity businesses. Um, I don't like investing in businesses where you don't have pricing power, where you're the price that you're of the good that you're selling is not under your control. You can't raise prices 10% every year just like Disney does when people are selling tickets to their theme park. Every year, Disney says we're going to raise the price of our theme park tickets, and every year people pay the price. Now, with COVID-19, we'll see if that continues. But in general, Disney has pricing power. Companies that don't have pricing power are companies like oil companies or companies like Basically, anyone selling a global commodity, anyone selling natural gas, anyone selling soybeans or wheat, you know, the farming industry has lots of commodities they sell, anyone selling um, beef. Um, Basically, if you sell a commodity, you don't control the price. Well, money is a commodity and banks don't control its price. You see, at least in the United States and basically throughout the world, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. makes a common practice of manipulating the value and price of money. They determine what short-term interest rates should be. Now, there may come a day when that's no longer true, but at least for now, banks operate in a manipulated market. Now, I'm not trying to put any sort of moral judgment on this, either good or bad. We're simply looking at what takes place today and judging how we should behave, taking into account how things work. It doesn't matter to an investor whether the stuff that goes on in the market should be happening or not. It only matters in the investor to understand what actually happens. You need to be realistic. You need to be prudent. You need to take advantage of the opportunities that appear. You shouldn't be passing judgment on whether certain things should or shouldn't happen. Simply recognize that there are certain ways that the market is occurring. There are certain market manipulations. One of them is the Federal Reserve's input into the marketplace. You can't buy and own banks without recognizing that this occurs and planning accordingly. What this means is that, in general, banks don't have pricing power. You see, the follow-on, second-order effect of this is that the most cost-efficient banks will win, prosper, and grow, while everyone else will fail or shrink away into obscurity. There's economies of scale in this business. The bigger the bank, the more competitive it is. It means the lower cost they can have per deposit because they're a larger bank. This is why you're seeing the smaller banks being low returns on equity and the smaller banks failing over time and being sold off to competitors. 
The second caveat here with this is that the profitability of a common bank will be quite different in different interest rate environments. The shape of the yield curve is critical, but any bank you invest in doesn't control the yield curve. So not only do banks not control the price of money, they don't control the short-term price of money or the long-term price of money. And the combination of these two facts are the driving forces behind how profitable a bank is. If short-term interest rates are incredibly low and long-term interest rates are incredibly high, banks will be extremely profitable. But if the yield curve is flat and short-term rates are low while long-term rates are also low, banks are going to be very unprofitable. Currently, the yield curve is much flatter than it has been historically, which means that bank profitability is under a lot of pressure right now. Question becomes, do you think it's always going to be that way? But even if you think it might not always be that way, you need to understand that currently it is, and that market forces aren't going to force that to change so long as the marketplace continues to be manipulated. Now, you can try and judge when that's going to change, whether the Fed will eventually stop manipulating the market. My goal is not to give you an answer to that question. My goal is simply to say that it's something you have to think about if you're investing in the banking industry, and it's not something you have to think about if you invest in some other industry. My goal is not to give you answers. My goal is to teach you to think for yourself and to challenge you to answer the questions that are necessary to make good investments. Which is why I want to end this episode with a question. You see, it pertains to both my last episode on the attractive qualities of banking and this one on the unattractive qualities of banking. And the question is this. Which of these two sets of information was most new to you? You see, my guess is that the average listener listening to my podcast will be more familiar with the downsides of the banking industry than they will be with the attractive qualities. It's why I started with the attractive part of the industry. You see, the 2008 financial crisis is currently fresh in everyone's minds. We understand what can happen when banks fail. It's harder to see the massive deals that might be available in the banking industry when a recent crisis is so prominent. This is true in the banking industry. It was true in the oil industry after the BP oil disaster. And I think in the future it will be present in other industries as they have their own industry-specific problems. Either way, I hope this information is useful, and it challenges you to think deeply about the industries you invest in. Don't simply focus on the attractive qualities. You need to also understand what makes an industry unattractive. In summary, banking has attractive and unattractive qualities. In this episode, we covered the unattractive qualities that investors could learn about from the 2008 financial crisis. In particular, risk management is critically important, which means that banks are heavily influenced by needing good managers. Banks also operate with high leverage, which can be a double-edged sword. Value traps abound in the banking industry due to a history of low returns. Bankruptcy risk is higher than in a normal industry. And banks don't control the price of their good money. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 83. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and like or leave a rating or review in your podcast player. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.